Today our passage is from Psalm 146. Renette's going to read for us. Hallelujah. My soul praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not trust in nobles, in a son of man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow. And he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, Zion. Your God reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. All right. Question. How could Christianity be valid when it has not stood against injustice? How could Christianity be valid when it has not stood against injustice? Or even deeper, how could the Christian faith be legitimate when Christians themselves have participated in injustice? Or even more troubling, how about this? How can Christianity be true when it has been used to oppress others and to propagate injustice? Each week we're looking at a different question like that. We're in a series called Hurts, Hesitations, and Hangups, Addressing Obstacles to the Christian Faith. And we've covered some tough topics already, all of which are available uh, if you wanna listen to those on the internet. Last week, or two weeks ago, we covered the topic of bad religion. Why does organized religion produce self-righteous people? And then last week we looked at the question, if God is good and powerful, why does suffering exist? Uh, as I said, each of these sermons is up on the internet for you to listen to. You can access that via our website. And last week I asked you uh, to vote on the topic that you wanted to hear about this week because there's a lot of obstacles to the Christian faith. There's a lot of reasons why people don't believe in Christianity. And so I wanted to give you uh, the opportunity to say, well, here's what we want to hear about. Here's the obstacle. And I gave you some tough ones. I, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? Um, is Christianity truly the only way? And how can Christianity be valid when it is overlooked injustice? And you chose that third one. Uh, how could Christianity be valid when it is not dealt with injustice? And there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Uh, I'm sure that each of you has a particular area of injustice that you'd like to focus in on. And there is a lot of injustice. And today, though, we are going to really truly try to answer this question. How can Christianity be valid when it is not stood against all forms of injustice? when it has let things slide. And I'm gonna draw from many texts today. It'll feel a little bit more like teaching than it will preaching because I'm gonna draw so many Bible verses in. And I'm going to stretch you. I am, I am going to stretch you. And my hope is that if you're a Christian, that your understanding of what it means to be a Christian would actually deepen. 
And if you're not a Christian, and this is one of your objections, that I hope that you might actually see the beauty of Christianity's concern for issues of justice, like we've been singing about this morning. I know that this topic is difficult for some of you. You have a lot of questions. I mean, we could list off different areas where Christianity has either overlooked justice or participated in justice or been used to further injustice. We could just mention the Crusades. We could mention looking the other way or participating in Chattel slavery and many uh, who were silent during the civil rights era. We could just list those as a few. Let's get them out there on the table. And I think what Christians have tended to do in the past is say, yeah, but Christianity has done so many good things in the area of injustice. And that's true. I mean, a lot of hospitals are named St. Luke's or St. Matthew's or whatever, Baptist Hospital, because they were started by Christians as a way to care for people in the community. And the abolition of the slave trade was driven by William Wilberforce and other Christians. And the civil rights movement did have a lot of Christians involved in it. But I don't think that really helps us because then we're just comparing which one weighs more, which one's better, which one's worse. And the reality is that historically Christians have overlooked issues of injustice and they've participated and sometimes they've even used the Christian faith to oppress others. That has happened and we can't ignore that. We can't sidestep that, we can't make excuses, nor am I going to try. But I wanna ask another question in order to answer the question that we're looking at today. What does the Christian faith actually teach about justice and injustice? And is it possible that Christians have not gotten justice right, not because they were practicing their faith too much, but because they were practicing the Christian faith too little? In other words, has the neglect of justice come from the content of the Christian faith? Does the Bible actually teach the neglect of justice? Or did the neglect of justice come from Christians who actually neglected the faith? Or they didn't understand the faith? Or they willfully ignored the content of the Christian faith? And by answering these questions, I think we'll answer our main question. So let's explore when we think of the term justice, a lot of what comes to mind is what we think of in the, in the, the show Law and Order, a, a punitive form of justice. We think of a courtroom that addresses the guilty, punishment for a violation of a crime. And this understanding for the Christian is crucial because it really, it, it's what is in the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay the price that you and I deserve for our sin. We are standing in a courtroom before God deserving his justice because we have replaced the truth of God with a lie. We have bowed and worshiped other things besides God. We have not let him set the agenda for our life. We owe him a moral debt. We are in trouble because of his retributive justice. That's all true. Christ paid the price for that. That justice was dealt to Christ on the cross instead of us. We are now forgiven, we're freed, we're resurrected to new life. And in that understanding, justice is seen as retribution for wrongdoing. That's all biblical. But there's more to the concept of justice in the Bible than just retribution. There's another way that the word justice is used, and we actually see it a lot more in the Old Testament. Justice is not primarily in terms of punishment, but in terms of restoring and making things right. Justice is restoration. Look at our passage today, 146, verses 6 through 7. God remains faithful forever, executing 
for the exploited. See how the word is used in our text. He executes justice for the exploited. Now, that doesn't mean that God goes around punishing those who are exploited, but rather that God's concern is to set things right for those who are exploited and oppressed. See what follows. The Lord frees prisoners. Well, he gives food to the hungry. He frees prisoners. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. All of these are setting things right for those who are experiencing something that's wrong. Now, some say this is a spiritual meaning. The Lord spiritually frees people from sin, from their prison of sin. He, he spiritually opens their eyes so that they can see Jesus, and he delivers them from the oppression of Satan. So they say that this passage is meant to be taken spiritually. Now, all those things are true. The Lord does set us free from sin. He sets us free from the oppression of Satan. But as the passage describes God, it isn't just talking about a spiritual deliverance. See what's next. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow. It's hard to spiritualize that away. God is literally talking about Resident aliens, those who are orphaned, those whose husbands have died. We can't over-spiritualize that. God has a heart to bring justice to expression for those who need things set to be set right. It's not a retributive justice solely. It's also about bringing a practical expression of his goodness and love into someone's life who needs it. And in the life of someone who's vulnerable or who has been oppressed or has no one else to care for them, God has a special way of caring for people in those situations. He cares about the oppressed and the oppression they face. He cares about it so much that he acts on his concern. It says that he executes justice. He doesn't just have feelings. He does something. He sets himself to set things right for those suffering injustice because God cares about Justice. God cares about justice. Let's look at more scripture just in case we're looking at an isolated event. Psalm 103 says, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He acts, he cares, he does something. But not only that, he wants his justice displayed in all of the earth. One of my favorite passages in scripture is from Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. I love that. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. God wants his justice displayed on the earth as a representation of who he is and what he loves. So how does that happen? Where does that show up? Well, it shows up through his people, through his people that care about justice. God's heart for justice is reflected in his people. His, his concern for justice shines through as his people practice justice. Look how clearly this shows up in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the resident alien, that's the refugee, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of, of Egypt. What God loves, he commands his people to live. 
The character of God becomes the concern of his people. And even as the people had experienced injustice themselves in the land of Egypt, that was a teaching mechanism for them to understand how unjust the world was that they might become a just people. They experienced injustice in order that they might no longer oppress anybody else but live out justice in this world. Look how he says it again in Deuteronomy 24. Do not deny justice to a resident alien or fatherless child. Do not take a widow's garment as security. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. Even as the people had experienced injustice, it was a teaching mechanism that they might not become an unjust people, but might show compassion and have a special concern for restoring the vulnerable from their broken situations. And even above that, when they were unjust, God corrected them. He didn't let it slide. It's commanded over and over to be just and practice justice. In Isaiah 1, God is correcting his people, and he says, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, because they weren't pursuing justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It is so important to God that he considers it a requirement for living a life under God. One of the most famous passages in the Bible that people like to quote is Micah 6.8. And look how simply this call to live out justice is put. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, or to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God, to act justly, do justice, pursue justice, do not deny justice, execute justice. I know for some of you, you're like, what? Where did this come from? I had no idea. God deeply cares about justice. So if God deeply cares about justice, why have Christians been such a mixed bag when it comes to justice? Why have we, and I, I do say we, why have we been such a mixed bag? Why do we care about some issues of justice and not others? Why, why is Christianity such a mixed bag when it comes to justice? Well, as I said earlier, and others have pointed out, I, I believe it's because, not that we've been too Christian, but we've not been Christian enough. It's not because of the Christian faith, it's because we've ignored parts of the Christian faith. It's not because we've pressed too far into our beliefs, it's because we've separated out some things and pressed into some things and ignored others, and ignored others. And I wanna point out a few of those places this morning that Christians have historically ignored. Because if we really wanna be a people that practices justice, we have to understand what has been ignored in the past so that we do not ignore it in the future. The first thing is this, loving God without loving neighbor. Loving God without loving neighbor. When Jesus is asked by the Pharisees about the greatest commandment in all of God's law, what's the single greatest commandment, Jesus? He says the most important commandment is to love God with everything that you got. But then he says, and there's another commandment that is right there with that greatest commandment. 
Even as you're following God, you're letting him direct your life, you're worshiping him, you're letting his word guide you, there is another command that you cannot ignore if you're really going to take that first command to love God seriously. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees ask him, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he says to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. But then he doesn't stop there. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. It's amazing how Jesus responds, right? Which is the greatest commandment? Well, let me tell you the greatest commandment, but there's one that you cannot ignore once you say that greatest commandment. Jesus states that the first commandment is to love God, but you cannot ignore loving neighbor as yourself if you're going to say you love God. Why? Because God created every human being. God has bestowed every human being with dignity. And so you can't say you're going to love God, but not love the people that he created. And notice he doesn't even say it's love people that are like you. He says, love the people near you, love your neighbor. But for some reason, Christians have focused on that first commandment while ignoring the second. We have served God without sacrificing for our neighbor as if it were possible to do one without the second. And the result has been devastating. It really has been devastating. Recently, there was a conference in Louisville, Kentucky called Together for the Gospel. And one of the topics that came up several times was the topic of justice. And Ligon Duncan, who's a well-known pastor in our circle, he talked about this topic. But he talked about it in the very light that Jesus is talking about it. About the first commandment and the second commandment and how they're inseparable. And I thought about just quoting what he said, but I think it's actually much more powerful to hear his words. And I want you to hear his words, and I want you to hear his his tone as he talks about the church's failure to live out the second commandment while focusing on the first. If we're like Jesus, we're like that. But look, we have worked really hard to delimit the application of the law of the neighbor. Now, very quickly, I want to apply two particular, I could, I could do a million of these, but let me pick two really hard ones, because we've already talked about it this week. I believe that if the Reformed community in America in the 19th and 20th century had simply applied the second commandment, we would be in a very different place than we are today in terms of racial tensions. But my community figured out how the second commandment didn't apply to that. Now, let me just tell you how it happened. In the early 19th century, leading up to 1837, both Baptists and Presbyterians decided that slavery and slaveholding was dividing the church. It was a divisive issue. And they decided that it was harmful to unity, and therefore they decided it was a thing that shouldn't be talked about in the church in order to keep unity. And then they said this, if you talk about stuff like that in the church, you're getting into politics and social life. And sometimes they gave fancy names to that, like the spirituality of the church. And all the while, they were saying, the second commandment doesn't apply here. And and so if you get all antsy 
when somebody starts applying the second commandment here is because they taught you well. They taught me well. It has taken more than three decades for God to bring this blindness off of my heart. Forgive me, brothers. Friends, this isn't about some social gospel. There are a lot of things you can worry about in life. Don't ever worry that Lig Duncan really grooves on cultural Marxism, okay? <laughs> this is the dadgum second commandment. You cannot worship God without worrying about people. You can't love God and not love people, especially those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Look how bluntly John puts this in 1 John 3. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? We love God because he first loved us. We love God because he sent Jesus Christ into this world to pay the price for our sin, to die on the cross, and you're in my place. That is sacrificial love. But if that sacrificial love, if we really get it, if we've taken hold of it, it doesn't just stay in here. It gets expressed outwardly, especially to those that are part of the Christian community. We are called, as we are called to love God, we are called to love neighbor, and at times, Christians have pressed into that first commandment without pressing into the second. I'm giving you straight up answers. Why has this happened? What have we pressed into and ignored? We've pressed into the first commandment without pressing into the second. Secondly, we've pressed into the gospel without pressing into the kingdom. Our passage today frames all that talk about God's heart for justice in terms of God's reign and his kingdom. In verse 10, it says this, the Lord reigns forever. In other words, the summary of all his concern for the poor and the vulnerable and those who are oppressed is that this is how God shows he is king. He cares for those people. And when Jesus himself comes on the scene and begins preaching, he frames his whole ministry and is preaching around the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's Kingdom. Look what he says in Matthew 4, 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And I put a ton of references down there just in case you want to look up that phrase, the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Because what Jesus is saying is when he comes through him and through his work and through his preaching, the government of heaven is now infiltrating earth. The kingdom of heaven is now coming to expression on earth. God's reign and rule are now coming to expression through Jesus. He has come as the king of a kingdom, and he's a very different type of king. He's the type of king who dies for sinners, who will eventually put himself up on the cross to restore us to God. But he is still a king, and he's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He has come that God's kingdom might infiltrate earth. And we see that in a very real sense. I mean, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. That's all about God's compassion and love and goodness and justice. And then what does he do? He heals every disease and sickness 
among people. Now, I don't want to say that Jesus' ministry is not pointing towards the cross. Of course it is. Of course it's pointing towards the cross. It's pointing to the fact that you and I deserve judgment from God. We deserve to spend eternity apart from God in hell. But because of what Jesus has done for us, because he shed his blood on the cross, you and I are now restored by faith in him to God. Amen. Amen. This is absolutely true. And this is good news. But... Jesus also sets the context of the good news in the coming of God's kingdom into this broken world. That God is restoring. He's, first of all, restoring us to himself through the work of Jesus, but then he's also making things right on this earth. Both are true, and we cannot abandon the cross for the kingdom, nor the kingdom for the cross. The good news about Jesus also includes that Jesus is king, and he brings a kingdom into this world. And they are both called good news in scripture. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are saved from something for something. We are saved from something for something. We are saved from sin and from judgment and hell for something. Mainly to be God's kingdom representatives here on earth. Look how Paul puts this so succinctly in Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And too often, the church has separated these two things. Either say, we don't need Jesus' salvation, we just need justice, or, or we don't need the justice, we just need salvation, when it's all packaged together in the ministry of Jesus. These things are absolutely intertwined. And as people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus on the cross, we have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom where sin and evil and Satan and injustice dominate. But we have been transferred into a kingdom, the kingdom that is Jesus's kingdom, where righteousness, love, compassion, mercy, and justice are the values of that kingdom. And you and I are saved from God's wrath and we're saved for something to be representatives of the kingdom on this earth. This is what we're called to. But much of the church has not seen the robustness of the good news. It's truncated in their mind. The good news is only about escape from God's wrath rather than about representation of God's kingdom. The good news is only about the cross rather than the cross and the kingdom. The good news is about separating from this world when you die rather than infiltrating this world while you live. And so we end up as Christians that know Jesus has saved us, know Jesus loves us, lament over the brokenness and injustice in this world, but we have no idea that we are Jesus' answer to the brokenness in this world. We see injustice happen and we say, someone should do something. And we go back to hearing about how much Jesus loves us. We sit and watch the world burn while we munch on popcorn. We rejoice in the cross, but are clueless about the kingdom. And we can articulate the pain we are saved from, but I have no idea what purpose we are saved for. Barry Henning puts it this way. God's kingdom is his place of rule for the purposes of bringing his justice to expression. Carried out by the presence of Christ 
through the Spirit working in the hearts of his people. Too much of the church does not know or act like they exist for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven and brought into a relationship with God where our entire lives are now redirected from self-centered living to pursuing the establishment of God's kingdom, his goodness, his love, his righteousness and justice in the lives of others, our spouse and our children, our workplace, our respective nations and communities, the church, and especially, especially in the lives of the marginalized, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. See, because of Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future are fully paid for. Have you heard me say that more than once in this sermon? I want to say it over and over and over again. Because of Jesus, though, you are now part of a kingdom movement in this world to bring God's love and goodness and justice to expression wherever you live. As Christians, we are called to preach forgiveness and do justice. We are called to be representatives of God's kingdom and to live on this earth right now under the government of heaven to live as representatives of heaven in a very unjust earth. And that is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. See, we've pressed into the gospel, but forgotten the kingdom. And then lastly, if you're not already mad at me, we've pressed into political power rather than being poor in spirit. Even as I've been talking, I know that some of you are wrestling with this in terms of a political lens, from both ends of the spectrum. That's just kind of unavoidable in our day and age because justice is a hot-button topic and different people talk about it in different ways. And I I know that you can't help analyzing it in some way through the lens of politics. And, And that's just the world we live in. But I want you to know this. Our political commitments will only get us so far in embodying God's concern for justice. There is yet to be a political system that captures the broad scope of God's concern for restoring justice. And if you sign on the dotted line for any political system, you are going to violate God's restorative justice in some way. You will. You are going to give some issue a pass that God deeply cares about. You're going to give some issue a pass that God deeply cares about. And so while we all have concern for certain injustices, no one has the corner on justice except God. Just from our passage today, we see God's concern for the hungry, prisoners, those afflicted by physical ailments, the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, and refugees. And from other scriptures, we know that God cares about the unborn. He cares about those in minority cultures within the church. He cares about the oppressor who has victimized others by their sin and is themselves victimized by their own sin. God's restoring justice is so robust and so much broader than we can fathom. And it should really give us a pause to reflect. To reflect and retreat back into humility. It doesn't mean that the injustices you're encountering don't matter. Don't hear me say that. The injustices you are encountering, God cares about, and they matter. It doesn't mean that the injustices you care about are inconsequential. They do matter. They are important. But who sets the framework for your sense of justice? 
Is it you? Is it, is it a political system? Or is it God himself? We have too often given the framework for justice over to politics rather than to God. And we should move towards a humility before God and let him set the agenda for justice. People who truly encounter the God of the Bible have this sense, not that they are on the right side of things, but that they are on the wrong side of things. The currency the world uses to decide who is in and who is out always falls short of God's currency. And as people realize this, they begin to see themselves not as insiders, but as outsiders. Not on the right side of things, but tragically, people who encounter the real God of the real universe who really cares about justice, they begin to see themselves on the outside, on the wrong side of things, as one who has violated God's character especially in the face of a God who so robustly cares about justice, they see themselves not as insiders, but as spiritually bankrupt paupers who fail to embody God's character and heart for justice. They begin to see themselves not as political powerhouses, but as those who are poor in spirit, as those who are poor in spirit. Look what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs, as we translate in the CSB. But the amazing thing is that these very people, these very people, those who recognize that they're not on the inside of things, but they're on the outside of things, they don't perfectly embody what God cares about. Rather, they, they grievously violate it. The poor in spirit, these are the people that God gives the kingdom to. It is those who recognize they fall drastically short of embodying God's character and his love and compassion and righteousness. It's those who turn away from looking to their own sense of righteousness and rely on Christ. It's those people who are poor in spirit that God gives the kingdom to. The kingdom of love and mercy and goodness and justice. The kingdom of justice. And so even as we come poor in spirit, and we, we despair of self, it gives us a deep confidence in God. Because the kingdom of heaven is ours. It's not just, when Jesus says that, it's not just that we humble ourselves before God and then he guarantees that we go to heaven when we die. That's not totally what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, Jesus is saying, when you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, your inability to embody God's character, the ways you fail to reflect God's justice then you get to be part of God's kingdom of heaven right here on earth. You get to be part of Jesus' kingdom movement that is committed to bringing God's justice to bear in this unjust world. See, Christianity has an incredibly spotty record when it comes to injustice. But that is not what Christianity teaches nor what the Christian movement is about. In Luke 4, Jesus begins his ministry, and he announces his presence and the presence of the kingdom of God by quoting a text that sounds familiar to our text today. Jesus goes to his hometown, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus goes on the move with a grace-filled, forgiveness-saturated, restorative justice kingdom movement of God. And the amazing thing is Jesus proclaims that the spirit who fills him is the same spirit who fills you and me. The poor in spirit become filled with the spirit that empower Jesus to preach forgiveness and do justice. And we are part of the kingdom movement of Jesus, doing the works of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, living out the kingdom of Jesus by the grace of Jesus. Christianity has historically ignored injustices at times. But that's not what Christianity teaches. And so I want to throw a question back on you to close. If Christianity teaches that God deeply cares about injustice, and he's absolutely committed to bring justice to bear into this world, and he even sends Jesus on this mission of grace and justice, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to preach forgiveness and grace and do justice, let me ask you a question. Why wouldn't you become a Christian? If you care about justice, why wouldn't you become a Christian? The very embodiment of Christian teaching is that God deeply cares about the brokenness of this world, and he is on a movement to set things right, and he's going to fill us with the power to do it by putting the third person of the Trinity in us through the work of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. See, this is one of the reasons I think everyone who cares about justice should actually become a Christian. Because the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith is actually a God who deeply, unswervingly, without hesitation is concerned about justice. And through the humility of faith and repentance, we get to become part of that kingdom. Empowered, forgiven, and empowered to do justice and preach forgiveness in this broken world. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your unwavering character and concern. We thank you that, Jesus, you lowered yourself and underwent terrible injustices to bring us to God. We pray that you would give us a confidence in what you've done for us, but also a deep understanding of your commitment to your kingdom. We long for the day when you will return and set all things right, when we'll no longer have to have conversations that are tough about justice and injustice, but all things will be made right when the heavenly city descends. And Father God, you wipe every tear from our eyes and you comfort us in a deep way. And Jesus, in his all his glory, lights up the city. We pray that you would give us a deep hope and empower us today. In your name we pray, amen. Stand with me and sing.